0: Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Okay, so if, um, um, so, here's what we're, we're going to do. We're going to probably spend about 10 minutes or so trying to gather in questions, so as um, So, if you're if you're coming tonight, or you were at the very first service where I didn't have time to explain this, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think of the question that I say you would least like to be asked by a non-Christian. Okay, so so not the question where you're talking to your super-educated Christian friend, and he says in 2 Kings 12, 17, it says this. But in the Hebrew, I've read that whatever. And so how do you compare that to what happens in 2 Samuel? Not that kind of question. If you've got non-Christian friends who ask you those kinds of questions, your non-Christian friends and my non-Christian friends are very different. Okay, so I want you to think, you're talking with someone, they're not a Christian. What are the questions that you think, as I say, you would least like to ask, you would least like to respond to? You know, the ones which are, you know, the conversation killer or, or killer for you, right? And I say, well, gather in a whole bunch of those. Um, I've made a hole in this piece of paper, so I'm going to hang it on there, and then we'll do another sheet, okay? And then we're going to use those, okay, for the rest of the afternoon. So if you're bored this afternoon, that's because your questions were boring, okay? <laughs> Whatever is on there, that's what we'll be talking about. Um, if you can either give me a real question that someone has genuinely asked you, that make sense? You know, a... Um, or, if you are going to ask the question, try and ask it in a way that it's like, so don't say, um, can you talk about God and science? Because very few Christians say that. Ask the question in the way that you think it will be put to you. Does that make sense? Give it the emotive, the emotive language that would likely be used, make sense, in, in terms of how it's put to you. Because that language is really important. You'll see why in a minute. So is that okay? So my beautiful assistant, Bill, will uh, walk around with a roving microphone. Put up your hand. Um, and um, yell out the question, and then I will then write the questions up on the board uh, for my reference, and for yours, we'll be referring back to them. You're about to discover that I have the unique gift of writing in tongues. Um, it's not that common. Um, it's a very rare gift, spared for a few, um, but hopefully it will, it, 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 it will make sense. So who wants to kick off? Who wants to give us the first question? Um, so if, if God knows everything then why did he create us knowing that we would sin and create all the suffering that goes with it? Why bother? How, how do you equate the brutal God, and violent God of the Old Testament, who killed thousands of people in a flood, thousands of uh, enemies of the Israelis, and clans of the Israelis themselves with this peaceful, loving God personified in the character of Jesus Christ. How can I believe in a God who's anti-gay? And um, do Christians believe in one God or three gods? Explain the Trinity, please. That my <laughs> theology degree question. <laughs> So I, I do a dog walk with my neighbour every Monday, and so she's always asking me questions, and a lot of times I'm kind of like, oh, I don't really know how to answer that. But last week she asked a question around, so you know, if, you, if God's real and God is really all powerful, then how can He let children die? Why doesn't He intervene and save children? Because you know, they're innocent, and I kind of just go, oh, I don't know. So. If if God loves ev- if God loves everybody, why doesn't why doesn't everybody go to heaven? Uh, my question is if um, this is most likely to come from a person who's coming from a different religion to that to that of mine, and it's always if um, it, it's always around surrounding the Trinity of God how how do you believe in three gods and then if god is so powerful why does he need to be three of himself why can't he just be one and still be as complete as he would if he was three yeah um hello um like i feel like it's kind of um if god made everything then who made god To somebody who's lost, uh, whose baby's died, and it's related a bit to the lady in the corner there, um, what happens to babies? Are they Do they all condemn to hell because they haven't uh, come to know personally Jesus? Um, I'm at work and someone invites me to go on their day pride march. Do I go? How do I show that I can be accepting of everybody and... Um, but then maybe not be supportive. How do I d- break the personal and the what you do? Yeah. <laughs> I have a relative who wasn't a Christian who's just died. Are they in heaven or hell? If God sees everything why didn't he stop sexual abuse of children? You have the Stephen Hawkins um, ethos. How would you tackle that if you're in a conversation with an atheist, um, his his, uh, theories? Why is God so bad, i.e., the Old Old Testament, um, pretty horrible things happen to people, and why does God send half of us to, or some of us, to, to, to hell if he's such a loving God? if your if your god is omnipotent and if your god is the only god and if indeed hell and evil exist god therefore your god therefore is evil or not all good at least Um, All Christians are hypocrites, so what's the point? Uh Mm -hmm. How can I believe in something that's been used to perpetuate patriarchy? so sort of science related uh, to Stephen Hawkins, so particularly in schools, uh, how do you make sense of evolution? Just sort of following on from evolution, how does creationist creationism fit in with evolution? Um, if my friend gives her life to Jesus as a child, but then um, later in life doesn't believe as much, uh, will she go to heaven or hell? To Jesus as a child? but then grow up and don't believe in it as much as I like did, um, will I go to heaven or hell? This, this is from children I work with. If God's real, why doesn't he show himself? If God's chosen us, do we really have a choice? Okay. <laughs> okay. I tell know what, why don't we, what we'll do is we'll... Um, you see, my temptation is, is if I take questions for an hour and 15 minutes, it means I don't have to answer any of them, <laughs> um, and then our time's gone away. So that is a great tactic, uh, but I'll be trying to trying to resist it so let me just make a couple of points of introduction to this and then i'm going to get some uh put up um give a couple of three practical questions that i'm going to ask you all to be grappling with and then i'm going to be taking some of the questions from the board and asking you to bat them around together in smaller little groups okay so just if there's someone in the room that you know you'd love to be sat next to it doesn't make sense in order to to debate it with just make sure that they they are somewhere near you um, similarly, if you're sat to someone you can't stand and you think, I don't want to talk to them, then you can move now, uh, saying that you want to be sat next to someone who there's particularly you want to talk with. So you've got an excuse either way. Um, when, when we hear these kinds of questions, the first thing we always have to remember is there's a real person behind all of these questions. And that's one of the things that we have to figure out. Um, what we have to try and figure out is who is the person who's asking this question? I get to hear the same question again and again and again and again, but rarely do I hear it meant in the same way by the two different people. Even though the question's the same, often the force behind it is different. You can see this really clearly in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus is asked the question in Luke 12 and Luke 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, why in Luke 18 does Jesus give a slightly different answer to Luke 12? Is it after Luke, you know, by chapter 18, he's He's a little bit wiser, a bit more experienced. He's he's done the Michael Ramsden seminar on how to handle difficult questions, and he's got some much better ideas now, so you know he's gonna polish up his answer. And the answer is that's not it at all. Two different people, different backgrounds, different contexts. If you look at it carefully, the heart of the answer is the same, but the way in which he did it was different. And so the purpose of this isn't for me to suddenly give you sort of like you know 15 rote answers and if you memorize each paragraph, then you have a short, that, that's not how this works. The question is what does the question really mean as defined by the person asking it? So that's the first thing we have to keep remembering. People aren't logical problems waiting to be solved. We're people, we wrestle with real questions. So if we can give affirmation to, to the question, does that makes sense, it also helps affirm the questioner, helps them understand, you know what, this is a great question. Second thing, just observe here, these questions fall into three different types of category. Number one, and this is by far the most common question, type of question inside and outside the church. First category is moral complaints about God. Our most deep-seated struggles and questions are actually moral complaints about God. If God wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't God stop suffering? Why doesn't God do this? why does why does god allow that how come the god of the old testament looks like this and does all these kinds of things the greatest single struggle we have are moral complaints with god's character now why is that important if our number one struggle is a moral complaint with the character of god even as a christian let alone as a non-christian this is true for both how can you put your faith in him how do you put your faith your trust in someone you believe is not morally trustworthy so the reason why it's important to recognize the commonality of that type of question is you can never put your trust in someone if you think that you can't, they can't be trusted. Does that make sense? Even if intellectually you think there's an answer, it still leaves you feeling empty inside. Does that make sense? Yes, okay, you explained Michael's behavior about this, this, and this, but I still don't trust him. Okay. So if our greatest single struggle is with God's moral character, that means our answer we are to give an answer eventually, must address that moral struggle. Does that make sense? So it's very helpful to think that. Secondly, the second greatest number of questions are moral complaints about the church. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. How can you treat people so badly? And so on and so on. Does that make sense? It's looking at the church thinking, I've got a moral problem with you. The third, less, least common, and you can see it up here on the thing, are technical questions. Okay. Um, Tell me this about evolution. What do you think about artificial intelligence and so on? Those are real questions, but they are the smallest category. So whenever we hear a question, and some questions are ambiguous. Does that make sense? We ask the question, we think, ah, which which category is it in? So you hear a question. How are you going to find out? I'm, I'm asking you now. Right, ask the question. So unless you can read people's minds, and sometimes it's obvious what someone means as they're asking, the best way to get into what does the questioner really mean by this question is to start asking them questions. So, now, in the exercises we're about to do, there's one question I'm not going to allow you to ask, okay, which is, why do you say that? Because if you were to talk to someone for an hour, and every time they said something, you say, why do you say that? Okay, that doesn't make for a good conversation. And very often, really good questions even help the questioner wake up to the, the, their own nature of their own question. I don't, th- I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Does that make sense? You're talking to someone, and they suddenly ask you a question, and it's like even the question itself makes you go, oh, wow, that, that is a really good question. That really shines the light on where I'm coming from. And you'll see Jesus was obviously an expert at that, um, and that's what we're going to try and get a little bit better at here too. So there are three words that you're going to need to that I'm going to ask you to, to wrestle with in your, in your groups. And then we're going to feed back, and then we're going to keep applying this, and we're going to go around in, in a circle, and every so often we'll take a question and then actually try and go da- drill down into it a little bit more. And the three, word, three questions are why, what, how. Why? Why is someone asking this? I'm going to ask you in your groups to speculate about why is someone asking me this question. So um, one of the questions that we've got um, that I will take is... Um, um, how can I believe in an anti-gay God? So let's just take a moment and think, why might someone ask you that? You're talking to them, okay, you're going backwards and forth, and then they ask this question. What might be motivating their question? Oh, yeah? Right, okay. They're, this is a personal issue for them. This, this is how they would describe themselves, and so it's just coming out of their own experience. Or a loved one. Right, okay, they're they're defining it in terms of is is somehow God against me? Are there groups of people that God is intrinsically against? Right, love is equated with acceptance, and so I'm really asking, is your God actually loving, and are you loving? So maybe it's a moral complaint about both of you. (laughs) Right, okay, so the argument might be something like, look, if I was made this way, how can I then be condemned for having been made the way that I am? That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, why else might they ask it? Right, it seems inconsistent. You know, I believe this and this and this, and therefore that's inconsistent with that, so is it like a pick and choose thing and you look at all these inconsistencies and you pick the ones that you want? Is that what this is about? What else? Right, okay. This is a great question to shut you up. They don't want to be having the conversation with you anyway. Um, you know, <laughs> um, you're, you're saying you'd love to talk to them, so they're thinking here's a question to make you shut up and go away. Okay, and that's what the question's designed to do. So it's not so much a question, it's like an argument. Like, pop, there's your balloon gone. Right, now now, now, now I'm gonna go enjoy the rest of the party. Right, why else? Right, they know it's contentious, and so they they either want to see how you handle that contentious issue to see what kind of person you are, okay, or or what you actually think about it. Why else, How, how might that affect them? rejection. Who said that? Yeah, I think that's, and it could be, I'm thinking, you know what, I know Christians, I know you, I really like you, I've been to a few things, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian, but if I become a Christian, do I have to become a morally worse person by believing this, this, and this? Because if I do, then it's really problematic for me. Does that make sense? And that would lead to my rejection as a question. Does that make sense? It's very, now, what do you notice? What do all of those differing, differing motives do to the question? Can you see how much they change the question? So people sometimes say to me, look, Michael, you do this for a living. Like, publish a series of flowcharts. You know, they say this, you say that. Okay? that. So then you say this, and then they either respond that way or that way. And then, you know, and, and then you know, I just follow the flowchart through, and it sort of makes like evangelism like a, like a slot machine thing. You know, pull in the question, pull the handle, bang, out comes the answer, and you get a convert every time. That's just not the way it works. What we have to do is think, what does this question mean for you? How are you defining it? And sometimes, as you go into it, you end up in a very different place. I mean, a very different place. I can't believe God is against people. Uh, um, How can God be so strongly anti-gay? What makes you say that? Well, I've seen a lot of bigotry in the past. You know, how did you experience that? Where did that come from? Well, when I was in this country, I saw how, you know, Christians treated this religion, religious minority, and they were very oppressive. You know, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, yes. You know, my parents actually came from this really strict church, and we were told and indoctrinated from an early age that we should he- hate these people. Well, can you see where the conversation's got to? Probably, what they most want to talk about is that. That's just the outworking. Does that make sense? The heart of the question that they're ultimately really struggling with is actually somewhere very different. So learning the figuring out the motive the why why are you asking this completely changes the nature of the question. So if you want some homework from here and forgive me for setting homework but you know I run a center that teaches people part time so you know we set homework. Imagine a conversation you've had with someone who isn't a christian that seemed to go round and round in circles. Okay? They were saying one thing you were saying another they kept repeating their question you kept saying what your answer was. What you'll realize is very often you were missing each other. They were asking one question, you were answering another, and the two questions missed each other. Does that make sense? They kept repeating it, you kept, and actually, that's why it felt like there was no traction there. It's it's a really interesting thing to do. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit disturbing because it makes you realize, wow, okay? Um, I think I now may have figured out where they're coming from. So the why, why are they asking? Now the next thing then is the what. Okay, what are the kinds of questions I could ask that could help me understand what they're understanding? But let me ask something else. When I talked earlier in, in both of the services if you were there about Jesus asking lots of questions. Now, when I ask questions, it's to fill in gaps in my knowledge. Make sense? What's your name? Where are you from? Um, is there a personal experience you've had that makes you make this observation? That's filling in gaps in my knowledge. Was Jesus filling in gaps in his knowledge when he asked questions? No. So why is he asking all those questions? Pun, To dignify them, and what's the effect of it? They feel heard, heard and even more basic for them. Pun, You're respecting them, and? And, okay, hopefully they can see what's on their own heart. Look, all of us at times have felt things, struggled with things, wrestled with things, so that we don't fully understand. Does that make sense? We feel the struggle of it. We sense it. We have an idea of it. But if you were to ask us to clearly ad- articulate why is this so difficult, or so complex, or so hard to answer, we may struggle. And then someone may come along and say, do you think it's this, this, and this? And you go, yeah, actually, that's it. If it's, if it's not it, you'll very quickly find out. I, I can remember once <laughs> being in a, a country, in, uh, I was in Asia, and this uh, businessman came to me and said, I'm desperate to have some of your time. Um, I I really want to talk to you about something important. So I said, look, after lunch and before the evening, I'm free for about three or four hours. Why don't we meet together? He picked me up in the car, and I never prayed so much in my entire life because we almost died seven times in 10 minutes. (laughs) I mean, the the number of things we almost hit, people, cars, lampposts. And, you know, I mean, we're literally like swerving all over the place. And about 10 minutes in, he says, you know what? He says, I actually have a chauffeur and a Rolls Royce, and I haven't driven myself in 18 years, but I wanted to have time alone with you. So I borrowed my daughter's car, you know, so, I, so to make sure there's no one else in the car. And I'm like thinking, I, I wish you're taking me to a hotel for coffee. Why don't you have your chauffeur drop us off and start? You know, we may not even get the conversation started. Is that the... Um, oh, no, that's all right. We'll take phoning questions afterwards. <laughs> um, um, and anyway, when we finally arrived, <laughs> when we finally arrived at um, the thing we sat down, he, he poured out his heart to me. And, and, but even after he'd finished that, I still didn't know what he was asking me. I mean, it was that confused. So I said to him, well, you know, sometimes when this happens and this happens, you know, we ask this kind of question. He went, ah, like this. Again, I'm not an expert in reading body language, but I felt that was a clue that I was wide of the mark. (laughs) So then I said, well, sometimes the real question we're asking is this. And he went, this time his head went down and he went. And I thought, okay, that's wide of the mark. So third time now. You know, um, sometimes in the past when people have, you know, what they're asking is, and then all of a sudden he sat up, looked at me, and just simply leant forward. And I thought, okay, at least now I understand the question you're asking me. Words, I have to figure out why is this question important to you? Otherwise, I'll answer my question, not your question. I need to figure out why it's important to you. In other words, otherwise, you don't care if I'm, happy, if I'm happy with my answer to my own question. <laughs> hey, I mean, that, that, you, know, you know your story about two philosophers having an argument, and one philosopher says to the other, okay, we're going to play a game. Um, whoever wins, the other person gives $1,000 to. I'll ask a question, then I'll answer my own question, okay, and then you answer a question, and you answer your own question, and when we can't answer a question we've asked ourselves, you know, you know, uh, you know that person loses and has to pay $1,000 to the other. And the other philosopher says, this sounds like the most stupid game I've ever heard. And the guy says, well, let's try. He says, the question I'm going to ask myself is, how do you dig a hole in the ground without putting soil on the outside? And the answer is i will start digging from the inside and the other philosopher says that's impossible how can you do that and the other guy says that's your question <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so look look answering your own question to your own satisfaction isn't you know, doesn't make sense it, 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 you have to find out what is their question so that's now when asking the question what can i ask ask the reason why it's useful sometimes to do the why why might someone ask me this question is it helps you be aware does that make sense of so ooh, here are all the different places and And as you encounter more people, you'll keep adding in more whys. Does that make sense? You'll think, ooh, I haven't heard it uh, asked from that angle before. This is what you really mean. So doing that in advance is just trying to broaden you out to, gosh, this is what this could potentially mean. Now the what, then, is the next thing. What is the kind of question I could ask that I think might be helpful to figure out what this question means to the person? So let's stick with the um, how can I believe in an anti-gay God this was, that's a question. Come on, let's, let's see. Can anyone think, wh- what are the kinds of questions do you think we could potentially ask that would be helpful in figuring out where this is coming from? Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> is this something that you feel opposed to yourself? Yeah. Hey? Okay, but what, what, what's, what would be the question? Okay, are you, are, you, are you asking this because you're looking for love? And you're trying to figure out: Is this is that what's coming? Uh, yeah, that okay. Okay. What gives you the impression that this is the case? Any others? I mean, that last one is really helpful. W- why is that helpful? What gives you the impression? What are you going to discover as they tell you the answer to that? Okay. Right. Would this stop you from believing in him? What's your I mean, th- what's interesting is, is is what you want to try and do. So, like, the question we just had, you know, um, what gives you the impression this is the case, is they might just say, oh, it's just what I hear on the media. What does that tell you about how much they know about Christianity? Zero. Or they might say, I did a three-year theology degree, you know, 15 years ago, and blah, 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 and, and now you're hearing their life story and their history and where they're coming from and what, that makes sense. You're beginning to figure out, And hopefully, what you also begin to figure out is, do you really want this question? Does sense does this question really matter to you? That's what you're trying to figure out. Have you ever made the mistake at a party of asking someone a question, only then to be given a a one-and-a-half-hour answer, and you're desperately trying to find a way to go and get a refill of a drink somewhere else? Has that ever happened to you? Okay, look, so don't be that person (laughs) Uh, as far as you can. (laughs) You need to figure out their ownership of the question. Uh, Any other questions that we could potentially ask? that might be helpful? Okay, yeah, what makes you think this? Right, is this something you've experienced? Okay, because that could open up a whole avenue, couldn't it, in terms of, where they are, what they're processing, what they're thinking, what they might have experienced or not experienced. Does, does, uh, some sexuality define humanity? Right, okay. Do, is this something which you think fundamentally defines who we are? And you're trying to find out, how do you understand this in terms of identity, in terms of meaning, value, purpose, and so on? So look, there are all kinds of questions. Sometimes we need to be really careful with our questions because sometimes our questions can inadvertently cause Know, someone, you know, someone cause, communicate to the other person something that we may not even want to communicate in terms of our questioning. So one of the good ways to think, is it a good question, is if you ask a question generally and it puts someone on the defensive or makes them angry or upset, even if the question theoretically is valid, sense? emotionally it was received in a different way. Far from opening them up, all you've done is you just hit a brick wall. So one of the good things to do is you're asking questions, and I love doing this, I often listen to other people's questions. Know, and see how they interact. And I try and learn, 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 learn from that. Now, then when you move to the how can I answer, now you're in a totally different category. Does that make sense? Because you're trying to figure out w- w- how do you define the question? What does it mean for you? So um, there's a guy who works with us who's, um, well, he, he's actually w- one of our research fellows at, at, the, o- at the Oxford Center, um, called David Bennett. He used to be a gay rights activist. He was the guy with the microphone standing outside the church going, you're all a bunch of bigots and I hate you. Um, and he was only spoken. only spoken here, and he's an atheist, right? Um, so his book, A War of Loves, has just come out. And so sometimes, if I, depending on where the person's coming from and what they mean by the question, I may say, you know, uh, you know would you like to listen to you know what David said or read his book and maybe we can talk about it if you want. Does that make sense? I'm trying to figure out, ultimately, however I answer, whether it's a substantive answer, I'm going to talk you through an answer, or whether it's like a pointing them to an answer, hey, do you think this might be of interest to you? It, it will really depend on that conversation. So now we've done like as a big group. This is now where things get a little more interesting. So roughly speaking, I'd like to divide the room in half. Okay, so if you're on this block, you're obviously on the left. If you're in this block, you're obviously on the right. And then, roughly speaking, there were, what six chairs across. So, you sort of draw a line through the middle. So, feel feel free to. I can see the couple there looking over their shoulder. But look, you've got someone on the end of your row. So that allows you to go that way. Look. So don't panic. Um, <laughs> so, hey, look for the body language signs. They're sometimes helpful. Um, um, uh, so, what I'd love you to do is to get into groups of three, possibly four. Okay. I mean, not much more than that, because if you much more than that, then that makes sense. By the time everyone's actually said something, and I'm going to give the left-hand side of the room, one question, and the right-hand side, the other question, and here's what I'd like you to do. You, you'll need at least one scribe in your group, and I'd like in your each group to brainstorm why might someone ask me this question? Make sense? You know, wh- 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 where could, and think of as many whys as you can in your little group. And then ask the second question, the what. What are the kinds of questions we could ask that we think would helpfully open up that question? either for us to understand it better or maybe even for them to understand it better. Does that make sense? The kind of question that you – and th- those questions are amazing when you have those. Does that make sense? If you're asking questions that make the questioner feel, wow, that's really on point and that really opens up, then, then, then you're, you know, you're going in a very clear way, and Jesus was better at this than most of us. Um, so I'm going to take um, the left-hand side of the room, how can the brutal God of the Old Testament, who killed so many people and be responsible for so many deaths, and the Jesus Christ of the New Testament, who's like all full of goodness and love and mildness, how can this all be the same? Okay, that makes sense? So if you're on the, th- this side of the room, okay, that's your question. My left, your right. If you're on this side of the room, you can have, if we're chosen, do we really have a choice? Okay, look at that. You see, you didn't even get to choose that. Um, so there's your first argument for predestination so so on this side someone says to you if we're chosen by God somehow how do we actually really have a choice in any of this okay and then I say threes fours you can turn around if you want to or just huddle around in your thing whatever's most convenient okay please don't make the group too big because otherwise I want all of you to come and run through the first two the why why might someone say this where could they be coming from okay and then and then the what's and then we're going to gather this in publicly and then we're going to figure out the hows between us does that make sense Okay. If I give you five minutes for this, um, and, and, and then after five minutes, I'll check back in with you and see how far you're going. Ready, steady, go. <laughs> You'll end up with two, two lists. The, here's why we think this question could be asked, and then the, and here are some questions we think that we could... That we, that we could ask that would actually help, okay? So the why is the motive, why do you think they might be saying it? And then the what is what are the questions you'll ask to figure out, figure out which one of those it is? Why, why might someone be asking? How many of you are on the what? What are the questions that we could ask? Okay, I'll tell you what, why don't we start gathering in some of the feedback, because you'll get to hear what everyone else has to say. Um, so why don't we start, um, who are all the brutal people in the room? Um, that's all. This that yeah. That's right. Um, so, um, so I tell you what. Why don't we just start at the back and then we'll just bounce around. G- give me. Start with just one thing from your first list. Why do you think someone might ask this question? So, uh, how, how about this? This group over here. Well, g- give me one of the reasons. Oh, there. Go on. Okay. All right. Okay, wants to pick an argument okay, and pick holes in the, in, in the Christian faith. Okay, so that could be it. Another one. Okay, all right. They've been reading you know, Richard Dawkins, and then they concluded that, of course, you know, and, and that's what they're bringing to you. Okay, right, so they have a personal experience of pain and suffering. Okay, now, let's just stop there, um, just momentarily. Supposing it's a personal experience of pain and suffering. And then you then follow up with another question. Um, And they say, well, yeah, you know, it's something that's happened in my past. And then you say, well, would you like to talk about it? And then they say yes. And let's let's supposing they, they share some kind of personal abuse that's happened in their past. By the way, if you hit something like that, and someone starts to share something like that with you, there's one thing you need to find out very quickly. And what's that? Someone starts to talk about personal abuse in their own life. Right, gone. Is, right is it happening right now? You need to know that. And what's the other thing? Right, have you spoken to anyone about it before? If it's happening right now, okay, then you've got a real issue that you need to address very urgently. And, and the second question is, is equally important, even if it's in the past, and this is the first time they've ever told anyone, guess what? It's going to be very raw. It's going to be very thin. And you may simply sit and listen at the end and say, would you like me to put you in contact with someone else to talk to about this? Or if they say, yeah, you know, I've, talked into, I've been through 12 different dozen different counselors and blah, 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 and this is the question I now stuck with, at least you know that emotionally some of this, a lot of this is being processed, even whatever. Yeah, go on, and Bill. So, and uh, this gets very interesting if someone walks into it. The most extreme example I ever had was I was preaching at our church in Oxford, um, St. Aldate's, and I gave an appeal for people to come to the front if they wanted to come to Christ, and a guy came up to me, and the first words out of his mouth were, um, I'm I'm visiting Oxford, but I I came to this church, and i have been abusing children for a long time. What on earth do I do? And it just so happened, because it was in my church, I knew there was a social worker on the front row, and I said, can you just wait there for a moment? And I got the social worker up to come to the front, and say, do you mind sharing with the people here what you just shared with me? And they said it, and I said, let me pray with you, and then this person will now have to deal with you. So there are legal things, but that's, I mean, we're moving now to some quite extremities. The only thing I want to highlight is, do you see how personal it got? And now you're not talking about so much necessarily the God of the Old Testament, you're now talking about, let me say it's their question about pain and suffering in terms of their own life and what was going on there, and the question suddenly shifted. So th- that's why I just paused there, it's just, as I say, these, the motives, the why they're asking, make such a fundamental shift to the question sometimes. You, you have to get to the bottom of it. Um, uh, if, you want, if you want to apply this into a marriage context, if you find yourself arguing about all the wrong things all the time, that's because you're not arguing about the tea, the coffee, or whether you should have bought chocolate biscuits or not. It is something else. You have to find out what it is. Yeah, go on. So the general principle that comes out of that is, with anything, if you feel yourself you suddenly get out of depth, does that make sense? So if someone said, you know, what do you mean by that? Well, I got smacked by my father when I was 10 years old, you know, 40 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Then you're, you're, what you're wanting to do is you have to figure out what, what <laughs> whether you're now comfortable continuing the conversation And you may, under those circumstances, think, you know, I'm happy to keep talking here. If, however, you rapidly get out of your depth, then once or twice, I've had to find myself in a situation at one point where I said, do you mind if I take a few notes? And in one case where it was so horribly complicated and then I had to get them to give me a draw diagram to explain what on earth was going on in terms of the abuse, I then said, I don't know someone here who, I know someone who might be able to help me, but I need to speak to them on the phone. Can I speak to them and get some advice? And then I was desperately getting hold of this clinical psychologist I knew. You know, and then an hour later coming back to them saying, look, I've spoken with someone. Would you be open to this, this, you know, and so on to help? But I don't want to freak any of you out because it, it can happen. It's just, it's just rare. But just, I say, remember, we're people. Sense that we have personal histories, and sometimes those are incredibly complicated. Sometimes they're very straightforward. Um, uh, and, and Bill's now volunteered day or night if you're stuck <laughs> with anything like that. Just ring his cell phone number. Even 3 a.m., he's there for you. So. um, uh Okay, a- other reasons? Aside from the state party, yeah. um, if somebody says your, your God seems pretty violent, yeah. I want to know if it's a technical objection, or yeah. if they're struggling with their understanding of, of who God is. Yeah, okay. A question like, how would that affect your relationship? Yeah, right, okay, that is, okay, so we'll, we'll come to the questions in a minute, but that's great. Oh, but yeah, because... If it's a technical thing, look, sometimes people are just thinking, oh, I'm just trying to figure, out how does that relate to this? How does that relate? And you can. Does that make sense? That's the third level of question. Those questions really exist. And they're saying, can, can you clarify this for me? And in that kind of case, sometimes saying, there's this amazing talk I heard someone give in church last week or last month, or whatever, would you like to listen to it? Or there's this little book I read, might be really helpful. But if they're saying, actually, look, I'm, my question is more, it's deeper than that. It's about, is this God, re- how do I trust this God? How do you trust God in and through all of this? Um, that makes sense, then it, it's just being, I say, aware about how the conversation's changing and trying to figure out, wha- as I say, what is th- what What are you asking me? What is it that, that if I could give you an answer, would really satisfy you? And you say, you've actually answered my question, not another question. Any other motives that you want to... Qu- questioning the authority of the Bible? Yeah. yeah? Okay, absolutely. Okay. So they could be saying, they don't really aren't bothered by this so much at all. If you start to answer about who is the God of the Old Testament, they may say, well, what about science? And you start asking about science, and they say, well, what about... And actually, their whole thing is, I just think this is a made-up storybook. And it's just an illustration. And actually, what they really want to talk about is that. So now you're actually talking about the Bible. Does that make sense? What kind of book is the Bible? Yeah? Yeah. 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 Yeah, okay, right, okay. So y- they they could have some kind of religious background through which all of this has been filtered, and they just think this is a whole cold, unfeeling type of thing, because that's what they've experienced, and therefore that's what they simply assume. Okay. Um, uh, in which case, the question they might be asking you is, do you care, and what kind of person are you? I mean, uh, is, is this is where I say drawing the chart, the flow chart, to give you an answer to every question gets very difficult. Any others? Yeah. Ah, okay. All right. They're trying to figure out, and this happens a lot. Do you think about this? Yeah. You know, do you think about your faith and all of this stuff? And and maybe you do. And they've been looking for someone who actually does think about this stuff because they've got a whole bunch of questions, and they're trying to figure out how far does this go? And that's great. Eh? Yeah. Ah, ooh, now we're gonna get into some of the more interesting psychology of this okay they may be simply thinking about how can i blame someone for the situation i'm in or whatever it may be and okay we may touch on that a little bit later but it's an important thing to be aware of if you're yeah ah okay all right so okay um uh let me try and just think about this um contemporary plus old. Let's call it like that. In other words, there's just been an earthquake in XYZ, okay? And, you know, and I've heard about God sending earthquakes and not. So, are you telling me that the earthquake that just wiped out Puerto Rico was sent by God? What are they being punished for? Alright? Anything else? Okay, look, they just think, look, there's no answer to this question, and I want to know, do you have one? So, Let's come back because this is where the humility thing needs to kick in. Sometimes people are just asking a very straightforward question, which is exactly what you're saying. They just are. Um, The question is what it appears to be on the surface. Um, But at least if you've taken time, hopefully, to ask them a question, you know that's what it is. So let's just come back to the questions. I mean, we've already had one. Uh, What was your your, your question? Uh, Uh, How would that affect your relationship? Right, Okay. Okay okay, how does that affect your relationship with God? Okay. Um, and they might say, I don't have a relationship with God. Or they might say, I find it very difficult to trust him. Or they can say, I've, I've always wanted to believe in God. I've always wanted to trust him. I just feel I can't get over this hurdle. However, they, whatever insight they give tells you where they are. Other questions? Ah, okay. All right. Um, uh, where did you learn this about the Bible? Again, really interesting. If they to open it and they start giving you chapter and verse, that tells you something. If they say, actually, I've never even opened a Bible, that tells you something. It's, it's really helpful. If, if they've never opened a Bible, the next question, which is great, is would you like to read it with someone to see what it actually does say? That's very, very interesting. Have any, how many of you here have seen Pulp Fiction? It's a very violent movie. You shouldn't watch stuff like that. It's bad for you. <laughs> um, how many of you have ever looked for the biblical reference given in Pulp Fiction? The thus saith the Lord. Have any of you tried to look that up? No? You have? Yeah, it doesn't exist. The first line exists at the end of Isaiah 58, I think. But everything else after that is just completely made up. But if you were a part of the Pulp Fiction generation, then clearly that's what the Bible says. I heard it quoted on in the film. But it's very, very clever. It's just not there. All right. All um, right. Um, Other questions? uh, Right. Are there particular stories in the Old or New Testament that make you think that? That's a great question. Again, it's going to allow them to, yes, no, I'm thinking of this, I'm not thinking of that. It's a general impression I have. Anything else? Okay, I'm going to quickly flip over to the other side of the room, and then we're going to come back to just a couple of howls in a minute, but, okay, so you guys were, oh, yes, that's right, you've all been predestined. Um, Okay, if we've been chosen by God, does that mean we have any choice? Right, let's do motive, and these ones will just, will yell out quickly, so. Okay, they're thinking, is there any point in trying? Everything seems futile, so, you know, isn't that what you believe basically too? Oh, okay, they're basically saying, look, there's stuff that I do that I don't want to do, but it's not really my fault, and so this is the perfect excuse, right? Mm. Okay. Oh, okay, right, there might be some kind of fear within them, and they're actually wrestling with it in a really deep way, and they're wondering, I don't know how to to undo this, not. um, Okay, right. Right. Okay. They may have experienced some kind of form of really oppressive authority in their life, and it's making them, you know, wrestle that way at the very back. Uh, it, it's already in value ah. Okay. Value in relationships, and what does that actually mean in terms of already chosen? That's really interesting, isn't it? Okay. If they feel like it's not, it's not okay. Right. So if everything, b- I don't have a choice to make anyway. I actually met someone once. Uh, next door neighbor in Oxford, who'd moved in from Africa, a whole group of them, and they have ne- next door to us. And when they found out, um, they invited me for dinner, and I said, are you Christians? And they said, no, but we're waiting to be saved. And I said, what are you waiting for? And they said, we're waiting for a revival, and then we'll get saved. And they all said, my brother is saved, and my sister is saved. And then I said, I have some good news for you. They said, what's that? I said, I'm an evangelist, and God has sent me here today to tell you today is the day of salvation. It was a great, it doesn't always happen that way, but it was a, it was a, it was a great meal. Um, uh, other reasons why Fun? okay all right It's a way again of dealing with the whole blame situation in their life situation okay they have a fear of rejection and, and so on and they, they really feel they have no hope ah okay what about people who haven't been chosen and they're going to hell and then you're now actually talking about eternal life issues and you're going yeah Okay, right, fear of losing freedom and being controlled and manipulated. In which case, you may end up with some kind of patriarchy questions. Does that make sense, going back that way? Okay, right, their their culture is that's just the way you think about things. And so, you know, they're trying to figure out if you think think the same thing. Okay, I'm not good enough. If there is a God who chooses people, then I'm not the kind of person he chooses. You know, he's going to choose the really good ones and the super able ones and so on, so on, so on. Right, okay, they're, they're just a logical thing. They're saying, look, there's a paradox here, and it can't possibly be resolved, and so how can you believe something that's so fundamentally contradictory? And that be a paradox, it's right, okay, and therefore this God, if, it, if this has been revealed by God, he's not obviously a very good philosopher because he can't even think this through. <laughs> now, again, c- can you just see, I mean, we don't need to exhaust all of it here, but can you see, again, the key thing is, is, is we were talking in the morning services about our hesitancy sometimes to jump into a question. And sometimes, the hesitancy is born out of being misunderstood or misunderstanding or somehow feeling we're really miscommunicating. So the best way to figure out whether you're going about to tread on some huge unexploded bomb in someone's life is to try to figure out where, where they actually are in terms of that, that life at that point. Um, questions, just very quickly, did anyone get that far? Okay. You were obviously predestined not to come up with any questions to ask anyone come up with a question to ask about the chose chosen do you think you have free will what makes you think you wouldn't have a choice pardon okay um uh, do you think that you want to reject the christian faith is that what you're anything else is that being chosen by god of a bad thing Okay, all right. What would it take for God to know for you to be able to know you can trust him kind of thing? Which is starting to push them into some of the more uncomfortable space about that question. Ah, okay. Oh, do you know how to make a choice? What's the basis on which you make choices yourself? Now, look, again, however you ask the question, as I say, the best way to judge how well it's going is anything that makes them smile, open their mouth and talk in a happy way, involuntary way to you is a good idea, Anything that makes them go defensive, lockdown, whatever, or get angry means that you probably, the question didn't, that make sense, hit home in the way that you hoped it would. You learn, you learn, Uh, have any of you seen, um, how many of you here have seen Pride and Prejudice? You know the BBC 6 part series? Yeah, so if you haven't seen that, you're probably male and single, and um, (laughs) and that's why. Um, um, But there is a scene in the BBC adaptation. Do you remember when um, Elizabeth is playing the piano? And Darcy's talking to her, and he says, I don't have that easy manner some seem to have in conversing with other people. And she says, and I don't play this instrument anywhere near as well as I should, but I've always put it down to my lack of practice. Now, I didn't know about this, but you've got this vision for 100 parties. I know that's only have got 36 booked out so far, so clearly you're not a sociable enough lot. But you are about to step into, between now and Christmas, 100 opportunities to actually... Practice some of this stuff. I mean, this is, this is, a, great, this is a great way in. People who are, who are good at asking questions and are good at listening to what other people need to say normally don't lack for conversation in those things. And when you make a mistake, then you, know, you, you, you find a way, the best way you can to get yourself out of it and just say, sorry, I've made plenty of mistakes in my time, but trying to figure out w- what the question is. Let me just say two things then briefly about both of these since we're talking. First of all, the, the, the classic, the God of the, of the Old Testament is a God of war, vengeance, and mass destruction. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love, likeness, you know, and babies in mangers. Um, well, that philosophical challenge, that can be overcome by the very complex theological process known as reading. Um, if you read the Old Testament, and the New Testament, you will read about God's love and judgment in both. His character doesn't change in the book of jonah which i may make reference in the evening service tonight jonah's complaint about god is god you are gracious compi- and kind you relent from sending calamity so jonah's complaint with the god of the old testament is he's too kind too gracious and he specializes in forgiving people and jonah hates it okay so that's jonah's complaint with the god of the old testament is too much forgiveness going on you're going to read so you're going to read about god's forgiveness in the old testament as well as his judgment and in the other. Now, there is just one other thing, too, and it's to do with tone. Um, um, So, I don't want to go too deep into this, because there have indeed been whole books written on this, but let me read to you from Isaiah. So, let me just read to you from Isaiah chapter 1. And then I want you to listen to these words. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. You have forsaken the Lord and spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned your backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, from the whole heart afflicted, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness and only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged or souped with oil. Now, what did you just hear? Pardon? Violence. And? Pardon? It's your own fault. (laughs) fault. Pardon? Really sinful. Half Half a quote. Now, here's what's interesting. Tone is very important. Have you ever noticed that? So if I walk up to you and go, hi, it's good to see you. Hi nice to see you again. Those are exactly the same words. And this is one of the challenges we have whenever we read the Bible, is what is the tone? I am sure none of you have ever made the mistake of sending an email only to later discover it was read in a tone that you never intended. I'm sure that's never happened to you. And it may be hard for you to imagine it can happen, but it is actually possible. So one of the questions we always ask ourselves is, how will this be read? Now, the reason I picked this passage is I love this passage because it also appears to ask two very stupid questions um, by God. Um, parents sometimes ask their, their, their children stupid questions like, do you want a smack? <laughs> As if any child would go, hmm, let me think about that. Actually, I'm going to need two because I was naughty now, but I'm planning to be even more naughty later today. So, you know, <laughs> let's just get the smacks up out, up front. Out. You know, I, mean, I mean, who's going to answer yes to that question? So the question here is, why does God also seem to ask such stupid questions? Why do you want to be beaten? Why persist in your rebellion? And the part of the answer to this, and this is partly what's in the Old Testament as well, is that theologically speaking, it's impossible to break God's moral law. It's impossible to break God's moral law in the following way. If you want to break the law of gravity, so you climb to the top of this building, Put a red cape around your neck a big s on your chest and a pair of red underpants on the outside of whatever else you're wearing and throw yourself from the top of the building to break the law of gravity what will you break (laughs) right you'll break yourself while proving the law of gravity in the process that is why a little bit later in isaiah god says come now let us reason together though your sins are like scarlet they can be made white as snow and he starts to plead with them he's begging them he's saying to them why are you living this way Why are you doing these things? Every time you sin and you do this, you get beaten up. You're not, look at your body. You're not, you're covered in wounds all over you. Look at what's happening in your family, in your city, in your country. Look at the damage and the mayhem that's been unleashed and whatever. And he's using very strong language to make it clear. And he's saying to them, why do you want to rebel? Why do you want to keep being beaten? Why do you want to repeat this pattern of behavior? What possible good reason could there be for you to put yourself through this much pain? So there's a difference between a threat and a promise. If you see a blind man walking towards a jagged cliff, and you say to him, mate, you better turn around, and he ignores you. And and then you say, look, no, no, really turn around. It's dangerous. And he he shoves you out of the way and calls you a rude name. And then you say to him, look, it's a 400-foot drop. There are razor-sharp rocks. You're going to be shredded to pieces. Your bones will be smashed into a million different places, and the fish will eat you. And what's left, the birds will pick up from the flotilla of debris in the sea. That's not a threat. That's a promise. You're, the strength of your language is marred or married to the fact that you actually care about what happens to this guy, and you're escalating your language to help him realize, look, I, I know you think you're okay, but you're, just, you're about to go over the edge. So, it's very important about how we read some of this. Now, having said that, there are some genuinely difficult cases in the Old Testament, too. So, I'm going to suggest two things for you to have a look at, okay? Um, number one is a doctoral thesis um, published by the leader of our Austrian office at Oxford University on suffering, which also includes a lot of medieval German, runs to 800 pages, and is published by Oxford University Press and asks the question about the haram texts of the Old Testament. Yeah. So if you want to go into the theological depth of this to such an extent that even if you were to meet a professor of theology from somewhere else, you can bamboozle them. Um, he looks at the five different positions developed by the church, classically from Augustine to today, about how to handle all of those texts and position them each other. Kay? And the guy's name is Christian Hofreiter. And you can order the book and you'll be delighted because it costs a fortune online. Because <laughs> um, it's a heavyweight, heavy-duty academic volume. If, on the other hand, you would like something that's slightly less um, heavy-duty than that, um, then if you look at Amy or Ewing's book, Can I Trust the Bible, you'll see there's a small chapter in there that's about 15 pages long, and gives a far, lightweight, far more lightweight treatment of the same thing, but at a more, slightly more popular level. And you will find everything in between. Believe it or not, this question has been asked before. Um, Christians have thought about it before and spoken about it before and also published on it before. There is a huge amount of stuff to take you through. There are some genuinely difficult things. I don't want to discount the fact that there's nowhere difficult. But here's what's really interesting. In in the entire Old Testament, there are only two or three times where you're going to find the really, really tough passages. Most of them are much easier to deal with than that. Um, So... so, um, Uh, Okay, I I don't want to say too much on that, otherwise we'll completely run out of time and we'll we'll get nowhere else. Let me just jump over to the the chosen question. Mm, um, I'm not sure if I've been predestined to answer this one or to skip over it, so I'm just trying to figure it out. (laughs) Um, Okay, if it's helpful, I've written a small article about this called, believe it or not, Did You Choose to Read This Article? Um, in which I try to talk about this this whole challenge. But let me leave you with a question because I think, I think it may have been inherent in the question you were asking. You, you were asking a question which was very good because it made the question slightly more difficult. Uh, we give simple answers to complex problems when we don't normally understand the depth of the question. Does that make sense? And sometimes understanding the depth of the question makes you appreciate the answer even more. Uh, My father's a civil engineer, and I remember the first time he ever stopped the car because he wanted to look at a bridge somewhere as we were driving. I can't remember what part of the world we are in. So I'm standing looking at a bridge, and I'm thinking, why is this so interesting? And the way my dad helped me understand what we were looking at was by explaining to me the engineering complexities to bridge the span. And the more he explained and illustrated it to me, the more amazing the bridge came. Does that make sense? It was an answer to a problem. When I saw a simple, well, it's just a bridge... I had no appreciation for what happened, but when I understood just how difficult it was to do it in those circumstances, on that scale, in that kind of way, in that geography, all in makes sense, even though I have now no civil engineering background, I'm beginning to go, wow, hey, the guys who did this is pretty clever. And this is one of the amazing things, this is why I'd urge you, don't bury difficult questions about the Christian faith. The difficult questions you bury, they'll undermine the ground you're standing on, and one day the whole thing will collapse difficult questions and asking awkward questions are how we learn about everything in life. Does that make sense? It's how we go deeper. And when actually you get a good answer to a more difficult question, you appreciate the answer even more. If If the question's overly simple and the answer's brilliant, you don't often appreciate it. The more complexity see in the question, and then you marry it back to the answer, you go, wow, actually this is way more profound than I first thought. So sometimes... That makes sense. So please don't feel the goal of this is somehow to minimise all the problems you ever see. Sometimes you want to get the greatest amount out of it by understanding just how hard it is. Now, having said that, um, let me leave, leave you with a very interesting—well, uh, I find a very interesting thought. It's not like some parts of the Bible te- talk about predestination and other parts talk about choice. The Bible, in the same sentences, same sentence has things like "Make every effort to choose the things which God in advance has determined for you to do." Now that's, why do I find that interesting? Well, we live in a space-time continuum, and I know this to be true because I've seen Star Trek many times, (laughs) and they continually refer to it. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that space and time are literally continuous with each other, without one, you don't seem to have the other. Now that then raises a very complicated question about the Big Bang and before the Big Bang and how you can even use the word before. Before there's any space, how do you have time? Now, sometimes people complain that I speak too quickly. I feel this is an attack from the enemy made by unspiritual people. <laughs> now, what they're complaining about is, Michael, there's not enough time for me to always process the thought that you're using. Right? I need more time. Now, imagine I have a special watch and when I stop my watch, time stops. Kay? So I can stop and start time. So I press my watch and time stops. In this room now from that point on what could you feel nothing Nothing. what could you do nothing Nothing. what could you think nothing Nothing. we can't even think in the absence of time does that make sense and we can't even imagine what it would be to think in the absence of time now here's the really interesting thing if there really is a triune god who exists before the space-time continuum is the author of it then i've got a more difficult question for you how can a god think feel, and act in the absence of time? And now we're raising a really, really quite profound question. The Bible talks about a timeless eternity before space, before creation, then the point of time itself, and then another eternity afterwards. And the question is, if, if time is like this, does it make sense? This is when it starts, and if it ends, it ends over here. If God is the author of it, that means that makes sense. he's created all of this from beginning to end. And if somehow he's outside of it, how would you expect a being who was outside of time to communicate to creatures who are within time? And two things have to happen. One, he has to break into it. And two, you would expect him to claim to be able to see all of it. So here's what's very interesting. In most ancient religions of the world, either God is entirely fatalistic. Does that make sense? Everything you do has been predetermined. Or everything's a matter of choice, but you don't know what the future is. And there are t- the unusual thing about the God of the Bible is he says is he doesn't seem to guarantee you a future which would be entirely fatalistic. Your future is guaranteed. You have no hope. Nor does he claim to give you hope on the basis you can make choices but then the future's up for grabs and who knows maybe everything will go horribly wrong at the end. He actually promises both. I'm the God who loves you with plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Which is why... The Greek language of the, of the Bible, which talks about the age of time and the beginning of the age of time, which is not found anywhere else in any other literature, the Bible's the only book of its type which talks about time itself beginning, which is why you will see in some translations, God did this before time began. My sense is this idea that God exists outside of creation. When creation starts, time starts. And then the question is, if there is such a being, does that make sense, who isn't a more super powerful version of you and me, how would you expect him to talk? So I'm going to give you two answers, a philosophical one, and then I'm going to try and make it more, more palatable, um, or whatever. Um, I, forgive me, I used to teach philosophy at university. Teaching philosophy is the secular equivalent of speaking in tongues. Okay, the difference is that when you teach philosophy, even, even angels can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> so here's the strong philosophical bit for those of you who have that kind of background. I would say it is a philosophical necessity, it is necessary, and when in philosophy we use the word necessary, it has a very particular sense. It is a philosophical necessity that if there is a being who is the author of space and time itself, the tension that we would see between the God who sees everything and talks about the future as if it's the past, sense? As well as us only understanding things through the passage of time, because those are the kinds of beings we are, should be mirrored in the in, should be mirrored in his revelation, and the Bible is the only revelation that gives us that kind of necessary tension. Does that make sense? All the other deities in this world are super powerful versions of you and me. Most gods are supermen or superwomen. Does that make sense? They're like us, but they can fly, or they're stronger, or they're faster, or they're bigger, or they're whatever. God, the Bible is described in very different terms. Does that make sense? He's not even bound within that space-time continuum. It's quite an amazing idea. Let me put it in a slightly different form. If, if you struggle to understand what I'm saying when I'm speaking too quickly, what we're saying is I can only understand my life in the passage of time. It's the only thing that makes sense. Does that make sense? The only way I can order my life, think about my life, structure my life is with time. There has never been a Christian anywhere, not even Calvin, who was quite big on the predestination idea. Not even Calvin said if you commit adultery, when after you've committed adultery, you can get out of bed and go, God, it was very wrong of you to predestine me to do that, and I hope you feel sorry about it. And when I get to heaven, you can apologize to me. Okay? That kind of fatalism has never been part of the Christian faith. There's always been an understanding. Does that make sense? That God can control, lead us, and we can trust him for the future. But actually, we will be held responsible for our actions, regardless of how you resolve it one way or another. It's a really big issue. In six pages, that's what I try to do in the little article Now, we're running out of time because it's coming up for 3.30. So here's what I want to do, because there are so many other questions that we aren't that we haven't even got to. I'm going to take a couple and just say a few words about each and we're going to and I'll unpack two. One, I want to answer who made God, because it was asked at the back there, right? And it's a good question. I think you should get a, a cookie for asking it. <laughs> I love this question. The reason I love this question is it really makes you think about language. Now, C.S. Lewis was a master about this. C.S. Lewis used to say, look, you can ask a question that appears to make sense, but actually doesn't. And this is a great example. When we talk about God, what kind of being are we talking about? And the answer is eternal. If God exists outside of time, he's always existed. When you say who created, what are you saying? You're saying... Well, there was a time you didn't exist, and you had to be brought into existence. So when we ask the question, who made God, the question we're asking is, when did the being always exist? There was never a time he didn't exist, not exist, and have to be brought into existence. Now, do you see the problem with the question? What we're saying is, when did the being who always exists not exist to be brought into existence? And the answer is, well, we're talking about two different beings here. Either God is a created being. Does that make sense? There was a time he didn't exist, he was brought into existence. And the Bible talks about deities like that, they're called idols, okay? They didn't exist, they came to exist, and they're called idols. Or there is a God who's always existed. The reason why the question is brilliant is it's what's used in debating terms, okay, to trip up somebody. Because the question has an inherent contradiction. It's, it's, when I was seven years old, living in the Middle East, I, in the break time, and this will tell you what a horrible child I was, and some would say a horrible adult. Um, I can remember in my break time, when I was seven years old, I, used to, I started having fun in the playground. This will also tell you how popular I was, too. I'd find two or three children like playing, and I'd pick one of them in front of their two friends and say, can I ask you a yes or no question? And they will say, sure. And I would say, does your mother know you're stupid? Now, you see the problem with the question. It's a yes or no. Either they say, yes, they're stupid, and their mother knows. Or they say, no, they're stupid, and their mother doesn't know. (laughs) Or they say, I don't know, which means they're so stupid, they can't even understand the question that I'm asking. (laughs) There There is no way out. It is a form of logical error that even Aristotle could recognize, and it's designed to trap. It traps you in the language. The language traps you. No matter how you answer, you're stupid. So you can't say yes or no. You have to say, actually, no, 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 look, I'm not stupid. My mother knows that I'm not stupid but you're not allowed to say that, but you're caught up now in the definition of the words and the structure of the grammar, and it's an amazing debating tool, okay? It's totally unfair. It's very unkind, but it's very effective at making people look stupid, So if you're asked a question sometimes, and it seems no matter how you respond, you're going to look stupid. There's normally something wrong with the question, and that's what's happening in Who Made God, if God is eternal, that means by definition he's always existed. There was never a time he didn't exist. He doesn't have to be brought into existence. He is. And you see that in the Gospel of John. When in the Gospel of John in the Greek, if you literally translate it, it says, in the beginning was the word, Who literally, who always was. And then he created the things that came to be. And therefore, John chapter 1, verse 1, distinguishes between two types of being." Things that didn't exist and had to be brought into existence, and that which always existed and never didn't, and, uh, and there was never a time they did not exist. It's quite philosophically complex and it's very interesting. That's what's happening with who made God. You have to think about the language that's being used. Um, if God is eternal, there was never a time he didn't exist. He just, that's, that's who he is. I'll give you now the most basic answer. Can I borrow you? What's your name? Theo. Theo come and stand over here with me, Theo. You and I are going to have a race from here to the church, to that chair. Okay. Okay. See who gets first. Go. Okay, who won the race? Who was first? Who was before me? Go on, have a sit down. Okay. You see the nature? Okay, same issue. Okay. You can't answer who was before me. Now, let me take one other thing, and then we'll try and wrap it up with something that's a bit more, um, uh, we can't make quite so much, have so much fun with Can I ask how many people are bothered by the question if God is all powerful and all knowing and good, how can He allow evil? How many are buzzing for that? How many are buzzing for something like creationism, evolution? That's like three. Hypocrites? Hands up for hypocrites? Okay, that's five hypocrites in the room. Um, Okay, let's just say something briefly about hypocrites, and then then we'll solve this problem of um, evil, very simply. Put up your hand if the reason why you're a Christian and you know you're going to heaven is that you don't do anything wrong. Okay, put up your hand if the reason you're going to heaven is because you can answer all the difficult questions that I'm going to put to you. So this raises a very important question, doesn't it? Why are we going to heaven? Jesus? Okay. Right. Grace. Here's the interesting thing. If I were to stand up in front of your non-Christian friends and say, Hey, Sam's invited me to come and speak to you today over dinner because he wants me to tell you how I know for sure I'm going to heaven. Imagine I say that and then give a piece of paper to all the friends sat around the dining table, and you say to them, what do you think about Michael Ramsden? What will they write on the paper about me? Rude? Arrogant? Arrogant. Pardon? <laughs> 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 hey, self-righteous. I mean, all kinds of rude stuff, right? What, what is heard when I say that? What do people hear? If I say, I've come here today to tell you I know I'm going to heaven. You have to believe what I believe. You're not going. I'm right and you're wrong. And by implication, even maybe even worse than that, that I think I'm a good person and that I'm better than you. So, look, look, I am the all-knowing, all-wise Michael. Eh? Um, you know, and, and you're the, frankly, losers. And and I've I've, I've come to tell you what you need to do to get yourself out of this mess. That's what they hear. So that's why some people think the Apostle Paul is arrogant. How can he be so arrogant to be so sure? Has has anyone here, have you ever accidentally insulted a friend? Okay. So have you ever had the experience where you accidentally insult someone you didn't mean to, and you go to them and you say, I'm really sorry. And they say, forget about it. It's all okay. Okay. Now, have you ever noticed the next day when you see them, you could be stood here, they could be at the back of the room, you need like one nanosecond, you can look at them and you can tell if you've been forgiven or not. Have you ever noticed that? It's the most incredible thing. And if they haven't forgiven you, you can go to them a second time and say, I'm really sorry, please forgive me. And they can say, forget about it, really, it's nothing. Well, you very quickly figure out whether that's true or not. Now, there's something very interesting in the nature of forgiveness. For forgiveness to work, two things need to happen. The person who did something wrong has to be willing to say, hey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. And the person who was offended must be willing to say, I'm willing to forgive. If you have ever offended someone, deliberately or accidentally, and you go to them and you say, "Look, okay, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I said it like that, and I, 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 please forgive me. If they say, look, I forgive you, it's fine, thank you for apologizing, and they mean it, it's incredible. Because the next day, they walk into the back of the room, they're... You know, meters away from you. You get one glance and you know everything's okay. So let's take Theo here, who I had uh, the race with earlier. Um, and obviously I won because I'm fitter and quicker than him. <laughs> and, and let's supposing I say, Theo, look, clearly I, I picked on you because, you know, and then I start insulting him. I think you must be the most stupid person in the room for the following reasons. And, and I say all of that to him while you're all sat here. And then let's suppose you think "What a that's an interesting note to finish the seminar and you all leave. And let's suppose you see me here, am I in Guildford? I've done so much travel recently, wherever I am. Um, uh, tomorrow morning, having a cup of coffee. And you come up and you sit next to me and you say, Michael, that was a really interesting sort of seminar. It's never been, it ended in a very unusual way. How, you know, uh, that guy Theo, have you, Spent any more time with him? And I say to you, he's my closest friend. As a matter of fact, there is no one I am closer to on the face of the planet than Theo. Now, I'd have to have the emotional intelligence of a carrot, right, to believe that's true. However, let's suppose, having publicly insulted him in front of every single one of you, that after you all left, Theo comes to the evening service and says, is there any way I could talk with you? And we go out and we talk all through the night. And Theo makes it clear that he bears no ill will against me and he's willing to forgive me for what I've done. And at about 3 o'clock in the morning, I break down into tears and I say, Theo, I am so sorry. I can't believe I insulted you like that. I can't believe I made up those things about you which aren't true. This is what's been going on in my life. Please forgive me. And Theo forgives me. And he buys me breakfast. And now I'm drinking coffee because he's just now had to head off to school or university or whatever it is. And you happen to see me sitting in the coffee bar and you come and sit down next to me. And now when you say to me, Michael, what's your relationship with Theo like? When I say I think he's the closest friend I have on the planet, there's not now a hint of exaggeration in my voice, is there? And there's nothing arrogant about it. Why? Because it's not about anything that I did. The amazing thing about that story is about what Theo did. It's about how he came to me, what he offered me. And the way you receive anyone's offer of forgiveness is by saying sorry. Theologically, we call it repentance. When you repent, when you say sorry, you receive the forgiveness that's been offered to you, and now there is peace between you. Does that make sense? And I know it's real, because the next time I see Theo, and he walks in the back of the room, I glance at him, and I know whether he's really forgiven me or not. I can tell straight away. And there's no arrogance in it at all. Does that make sense? And it's actually got really nothing to do with me whatsoever. The certainty that's offered in the Christian faith is that this loving God is determined to forgive us and offer us forgiveness. And if you say sorry and repent, you receive the forgiveness he's, been, he's offering you as a gift. We call it grace. And the amazing thing is you can be absolutely sure of it, not because of your special, but because of what he did and the price he paid. Does that make sense? And so now what you're trying to communicate to people is, look. There is. You can really know this, but it's not about being intellectually arrogant or morally superior or narcissistic or overly self-assured or anything like that. I have no assurance in the goodness of me, but complete assurance in the goodness of God. And because of what he has done and the offer he has made, I know I can receive that from him as a gift. And it's the most humbling thing in the world because saying sorry is hard. You may have noticed that. That's why we normally say to someone, I'm sorry if I've hurt you which is, generally speaking, how husbands apologize to their wives, which isn't an apology at all. It's just a statement of regret. What that means is things were pretty good until a couple of minutes ago, and now I can see you're upset, and now I'm feeling sorry that you're upset because my life got a little bit more hard. And if we just stop simply being upset and be a bit more rational for a while, then everything will be fine. But that's not an apology, as I say. That's just a statement of regret of affairs. A genuine apology is I am sorry. That means I'm wrong, and I'm admitting I am wrong. And that's humbling it is very humbling to admit you are wrong. And you're also saying, I'm doing my utmost never to do that again. And when it's sincerely offered, you, can, you receive, if, there, if it's willing, if the other person's willing, the forgiveness being offered on the other side. Trying to communicate that is one of the hardest things with the Christian gospel. In make sense? Because people feel it must be about us. We live in a very narcissistic world, so everything revolves around us. And what I'm trying to say is, actually, no, no, that's not how this works at all. Which is why genuinely encountering the person of Christ is one of the most humbling things that can happen to you. I mean, it literally should bring you to your knees and manifest itself in humility and love towards other people. Because there was nothing special about you. You know, you messed up just as much as everyone else, as did I. It's just being willing to say sorry. So, the, so let's just leave, end on that note and say this. One of the biggest challenges we have, therefore, are with our words. So second piece of homework for you. I've already given you one. Think of a conversation that goes around in a circle. Here's the second piece of homework. I would love for you to make a list of ten words that you would have to use if you were to explain the Christian gospel to someone else. If someone came to you and said, asked you the really simple, straightforward question, so what do you believe then? I, I'm re- just tell me, because I see it means so much to you, and I'd love to know. And they really mean it what are the 10 words you would have to use to explain what you really believe? And write them down. Love, forgiveness, mercy, God, whatever. Whatever they are. And then, I would love for you to find three to five non-Christian friends, neighbors, work colleagues, and say to them, look, I have a project that I've been given, a piece of homework I need to do. Can you possibly help me? I'm going to give you 10 words, and I'd like you to tell me in a couple of sentences what each of those words means to you. and write down their definition, and you're going to discover something really interesting. The way they define those words is radically different to how they're defined in the Christian gospel. And that's one of the problems. We're often using words in a way that means something to us but very little to the person we're talking to. I'll give you just one example. I remember when my wife and I were living in in workshop, this group of teenage girls were asking me about love and marriage and commitment, and they were basically saying, you shouldn't get married because you fall in love, you get married, you fall out of love, you get divorced, so the best thing is not to get married in the first place. Why bother? And it took me a week to come up with this, one week for one illustration. That's why you may hear me repeat the same story more than once, it takes me a week for every 30 seconds of original material on average. I am not joking when I tell you that I spent five days praying and fasting for that meeting. I spent five days praying and fasting for that meeting. 13 teenage girls is the most terrifying audience you can possibly speak to. And uh, for five days, all I was praying was, God, please just give me one illustration to help answer this question. A week later, we got together, and I asked them to sit in a circle, and I said, I'd like you to imagine the following thing with me. I'd like you to imagine that the boy you like most comes up to you at school tomorrow and says, I love you. How do you feel? And all of a sudden, what you saw was this. 13 people in the room grinning from ear to ear. Then I said, now I want you to imagine you hear the same boy coming up to a different girl the next day and saying, I love you. Now, how do you feel? And every smile disappeared. So I got them to open their eyes, and I said, look, you see, the words I love you are meaningful because they are given committedly and exclusively to you. And outside of that moral framework of commitment and exclusivity, they mean nothing. That's why a very famous group of British philosophers called the Spice Girls had a song in which the chorus said don't tell me you love me just tell me you'll be there don't tell me you love me those words have become meaningless everybody wants to have sex with me so they're happy to say i love you my question is will you be there what's that about commitment will you be there for me or not that's the question love without commitment is is meaningless it leaves the heart empty And it's one thing to hear about love, it's another thing to experience it. If you're gonna experience it, it's gonna be in that committed framework. Our closest friends are the people who are really committed to us. And so even when we talk about the God of love, does that make sense? We, in our culture, we think of a feeling Whereas actually married to whatever emotion love carries in the Bible is this sense of commitment. We, God is committed to us and committed to our rescue. And the question is, what is our response back to him? So you want to, th- does that make sense? Use the words you must have to use. Try to figure out what, what are my friends, my work colleagues, what, wh- how do they, what do these words mean? They might say nothing. They may say, well, that word means nothing to me. Or, or what, how do they define it? Then you need to say, how, what does it actually mean for me? And then the last question is, okay, how do I explain to you the most precious thing to me, knowing that I'm gonna have to rescue some of the language in order to get there? You'll find it a fascinating experience in cross-cultural communication, if nothing else. And sometimes you'll be amazed at what sometimes your friends have to say. And very often, when you get to the end of the question 10, after about four and a half, five minutes, they will say to you, what's this thing you're working on? And if you don't know how to get from there to start to begin to tell someone a little bit about your Christian faith and so on, then then you need even more prayer than I initially thought we did when we started at two o'clock this afternoon. You have listened really well. I want to thank Bill for his, his, his time. Um, I've asked Bill to um, make you aware of further resources. And I'll say one other thing, last thing. If you want to get really good at asking questions and listening, if you've never done the Alpha course, that is an amazing way to learn how to do that. It is a whole course built on the idea of asking questions and learning to listen really well. It's the best place to start. And the more you hear, And the more you feel that you you understand where people are coming from, the easier it gets to connect with them on the other side of the equation. Thank you very much. I want you to be very precious. Thank you for not throwing anything at me. It's been wonderful to be with you. And I'll see the remnant of you at the evening service a little bit later. Okay, thanks, Bill.